Well, good morning again. I'm glad to see you all here this morning. Had a wonderful children's program this morning. It's always good to see how the kids interact and how they um, enjoy the limelight for a little bit being up on the stage. Uh, it's always good for the season and good for our hearts. It just kind of puts us at ease in this season. It's always a, a wonderful time. You know, as we approach the fourth week of Advent, it's getting closer. You know, you have more get-togethers and, and family gatherings. Stress levels might begin to rise a little bit. Um, and of course, this week is going to be cold. So that's always going to be fun. So hopefully you're going to be able to stay warm this week and have some more indoor types of activities. Uh, this morning, what we're going to be talking about is the kindness of God or the grace of God. Sometimes, especially in the Old Testament, kindness and grace are synonymous with loving kindness, uh, his steadfast love, things like that. And when you think about kindness, there's a lot of different thoughts that can come to our mind. Uh, we can think about uh, times that we have been kind to others. For instance, this week I was given a gift uh, that I find very kind, especially in the temperatures that we're in. Um, I was given these wonderful pair of socks <laughs> that have golf courses on them. So it makes me think about warmer weather. Um, you know, I, you think about the different acts of kindness that we do for others. Um, but oftentimes we also think of the kindness that's been done for us. And that might be a little bit harder. You know, it goes to the, the conversations that we've had about benevolence and being able to receive things from others, especially with the American mentality that we have of, no, I, I'm good, I can do everything on my own. I'm strong enough to do those things. So it, it presents a challenge for us to be able to receive kindness. And then we have the old adage of, you know, out of 100 things that are done, we only remember the one negative, and we forget the 99 good things. So this morning, I want us to meditate a little bit and dwell on those 99, to dwell on some of the smaller things in life that are kind, some of the smaller things in our life that show us God's goodness. You know, Webster, back in the 1800s, defined kindness as goodwill, benevolence, a temper or disposition that delights in contributing to the happiness of others, which is exercised cheerfully in gratifying their wishes, supplying their wants, or alleviating their distresses. You know, when we think about kindness, it can be a little bit subjective in our own hearts and minds of how we value that. But today I want us to focus on how you have received kindness. Not so much what you give out that's kind, but how do you receive kindness? And we're going to tie this in to our relationship with the Lord. In Luke 6, 35, Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Now, when we think about kindness in this way, and we, we draw parallels to how God's kindness is shown to us, how it is given to us, this morning I want to take us through a longer story in Scripture um, 
that parallels this act of kindness, that gives us a good uh, picture of that. And I want us to be able to draw those parallels. So as we begin, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we go to your word, I just ask that you would open up our hearts and minds to see your simple truths, to see this wonderful example of grace being bestowed. In your name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, today we're going to be looking through First and Second Samuel. We're going to have about six different passages that we're going to read. Uh, we'll have kind of a main passage, but I want to go through a lot of the build-up to it so you can get some context. So we're going to start in First Samuel 18. Again, so we're going to read a bunch of different passages today and kind of walk through them, annotate them a little bit um, as we build up to our main passage. So in, in 1 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 1, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So this passage kind of intros the relationship between David and Jonathan, Saul's son. And in this culture, you know, being Saul's son means that Jonathan was somewhat of a prince. He was kind of next in line to be king, so to speak. When we think of monarchies, when we think of modern day things, you know, we just saw that transition occur in England with King Charles now taking the throne as Queen Elizabeth passed away. You know, in, in a monarchy situation, you would secede to the throne based on your lineage, based on your birth, or based on your might. If you were to take over, perhaps, and r- then rule with power over that nation. That is what was going on culturally. You know, when we think about how Israel wanted a king, they wanted to be like the other nations of the earth. And Saul, lo and behold, was head and shoulders better than everyone else. Because he was taller, he was more handsome. So he, they thought, let's pick this guy, he'll be our king. And, they, and he followed the Lord for a while, but then he started to go his own way and the spirit of the Lord left Saul. And then David was anointed king. Now David, once he was anointed, didn't as- assume the throne right away. Um, instead, you know, he kind of waited his turn for the timing of the Lord for it to be right. Um, and then, you know, as the spirit of the Lord left Saul, his soul was disturbed, and David gets brought into the palace to play music for him, to calm him. And he would split time, where he would be in the palace, and then he would go back and he would tend the flock for his father. 
But here in our passage, this is just after Goliath and the battle that happens with the Philistines and David is becoming this hero, he's becoming this young man of God and he's being noticed by everyone. And we see this relationship form between Jonathan and David. And the way that it's described is his, his soul was knit to David. You know, he, the love that they have is a deep kind of love. Now again, as we talked about last week, the way that our culture views love is everything turns sexual. That's not what this kind of love was. Instead, I think of it more in the Tommy Boy sense, to where brothers don't shake hands, brothers have to hug. You know, to where it's, it's a brotherly love that's deep in affection to where you would die for him. You would die for one another because that bond is so strong. And it's something that happens kind of automatically. You know, um, real life example of this, um, at the last church that I was in, in Ohio, first week, first time meeting people, the other pastor happened to have a son that was Noah's age, and immediately they were best buddies. It's one of those things like they were just together, and they hung out all the time, they were in the same grade, the same classes, and it, they were just together. So you can see what that looked like. And Jonathan, even though he would have this understanding that his dad is the king, he understands also, I believe, that David was anointed the king. And there's a symbolic gesture here where he is giving him his robe. He is giving him his armor to where he understands God's plan. He understands God's will in all of this. And he is going to support that decision of God rather than fight for position in an earthly way. So Jonathan is being kind to David and he is giving these things to him. And then in the next few chapters, you see how Saul's jealousy is gonna come out. Um, he tries to send him to the front lines in hopes that David would get killed. Uh, he tries to bring him into the family by giving him his daughter in marriage. Because what happens is once a different lineage takes the throne, normally you would wipe out any bloodline. That way there would be no threat to your rule, to your reign. So there's this constant positioning to protect yourself, self-preservation that was going on. And Jonathan didn't have that. You know, Jonathan understood in terms of what would happen normally, and he understood the plan of God. And he understood his love that he had for David. So Saul continues with this jealousy. He tries to kill David a few times. Um, let's turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 20. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan is on the up and up of what his dad's doing. And he's going to be warning David about what's coming. So in chapter 20, I'm going to pick it up in verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, then I shall not send and disclose it to you. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you, and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, 
as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So again, you hear the heart of Jonathan coming out here. But you also see some truth that's being said. I mean, think about this covenant that he makes. Think about this prayer. May, it's about David's enemies, right? May, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. That would include his father. Jonathan's well aware of the political situations. He's well aware of what's going on. But he is still praying for the Lord's will to be done. And within this prayer, he has this prayer specifically for David. That if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Show me the kindness of the Lord. Show me the grace of God when you become king. If I'm not alive, do not cut off my line. Do not be like the earthly kings that would just feel threatened by someone else. But instead, trust the Lord with all your heart. You know, as he makes this covenant with David, it's done because of the love that they have for each other in terms of the love in their souls. And then, of course, you know, he gets the news that Saul does want to harm David, and they go on this journey where David is fleeing for Saul, and there's several times where they're in caves, and David could, could kill Saul if he wanted to, but he doesn't. He takes this very high standard towards the Lord's anointed, to where you shall not touch the Lord's anointed. In fact, those that think that they're going to gain favor with David and bring the head of Saul and Jonathan, thinking they're going to get a reward instead to get killed because they damaged the Lord's anointed. And you think about how, how David treats those types of people. Go ahead and turn over to 2 Samuel now. Now, in 2 Samuel, you have, this is after the death of Saul and Jonathan at the hands of the Philistines, and you see um, a, lot of, a lot of things happening. Starting in 2 Samuel chapter 2, I'm going to read beginning in verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And at the time that David was king in Hebron, over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So again, you have um, this family battle to where the commander of Saul's army, Abner, he is pretty powerful. He's a military figure. He's kind of placing Ishbosheth in as king over the rest of Israel, the other 11 tribes. Judah is the only one that is following David. However, Abner and all the other people know that David is anointed to be the next king. 
They are working against that, I think, because Abner's like, hey, I've got a lot of power here, so I'm just going to enjoy this fame that I have. I'm going to enjoy this position that I have, and I'm going to make Ishbosheth king. So he's doing things in his own power. Well, there's different battles that happen between David's camp and the rest of Saul's camp, and different people get killed in it. Eventually, Abner gets killed. Um, he, again, is the military might. He is kind of the backbone of this camp. Turn over to chapter 4 in Second Samuel. Beginning in verse 1. When Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of the raiding bands. The names of the two were Benah and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Reman, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth is also counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gittim and had been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and she fled in her haste. He fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So in this instance, as the narrative continues, you have that fear that I was talking about before when power changes hands. You know, when Jonathan and Saul are killed in battle, again, everyone knows that David has been anointed king. She, this nurse figures, hey, David's going to come in and he's going to wipe out the entire line of Saul. So she takes up Jonathan's son and tries to flee. In the middle of it, he falls, probably breaks his legs at that point in time, and becomes lame. He becomes disabled. Okay, uh, and Jonathan's son at that time was five years old, as it says. Um, this is the first mention of his son. Let's turn over to Second Samuel 7. And in this passage, this is the covenant that's made with David. And what I want us to see are the allusions that are made to Christ and his kingdom. Again, so... What we've been reading so far is kind of the backstory, kind of leading up to our main passage, which is in a couple of chapters. And I want us to begin to see some of the parallels here to our own walks, to our own journeys, perhaps. So let's read part of this covenant with David in chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. I'm going to go up actually to the second half of 11 where it says, moreover. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Notice the singular. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before, from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with these words and in all accordance to, with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. 
So again, what we see here is this kind of allusion to Christ in terms of how the house of David will be established forever, how the steadfast love of God will not leave his house. Again, pointing to Christ in terms of how his house will be established. Now we're going to focus on chapter 9 as our main passage today. And as we go through this, again, it's going to kind of cover a little bit of what we've already read in terms of this context. So beginning in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So you look at this first verse. You think about the covenant that he made with Jonathan. Here is David after all of the hoopla, after the transitions. You know, he, he came into Jerusalem. He conquered some Philistines. He brought the ark into Jerusalem. Um, and the first thing that he's doing here is he's saying, is there anyone from the house of Jonathan where I can honor this covenant, that I can show him kindness? You think about the term kindness and how it impacts your life. What are the big events where people have shown you kindness? Now for us, for me, there's a lot of little things that have happened in my life. You know, I oftentimes will point to the year that, you know, Elaine was diagnosed and was going through treatments. I think of the big event being the benefit, where we were just floored by the outpouring of love and kindness. But then I think to the Helping Hands ministry, where there was meals made, where there were people who watched our kids, where there were people who came in and cleaned our house. You know, for that year, I was kind of just going along for the ride, caught up in Elaine's faith. If it was my decision, I wouldn't have had any of you come in to clean my house. It's my dirt. I don't want you to see that. I've got kids for that. But I also was able to witness your kindness, the love of God working through you to build up our faith that God does not leave us nor forsake us, that, we, that he uses all of us to be a blessing, to show kindness and love to one another. Think about those own moments in your life where people have shown you kindness. Do you receive it well? Do you reject it? And why? You know, because I think on a smaller scale, as we receive kindness from one another, we can see the bigger picture and how God is working in our lives. Whereas if we're rejecting kindness from others, in a way, it makes it like we're building a wall to reject the kindness and love of God. Let's continue reading. Verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, 
the son of Jonathan, of son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage, and he said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Let's pause there. Lodabar is out in the wilderness. It's out in barren land. You know, when the nurse fled, she fled to a place where she thought he can hide, where he can be safe. You know, you go from being kingly, uh, being a prince, the son of a prince, to being in poverty, to being crippled in the matter of moments. Life changed so fast as a young boy for Mephibosheth. And he was out in the barren lands. Begin to make these parallels to your own life. Where before the fall, things were great. Things were wonderful. But then after the fall, we are crippled, broken, in barren lands. The barren lands of sin. Until the summoning of the king. And when the king calls your name... Most times it's probably not good. You, th- you see the reaction of Ziba, I am your servant. Please be merciful, don't kill me because I serve Saul. You see how Mephibosheth comes, falls on his face, understanding his position that he's good as dead because the blood of his father, just because of his nature. He does not deserve to stand before the king. You think about how David calls his name. Understanding that one day God is going to call your name. And you're going to come before the king. What is our response going to be? Mephibosheth says, Behold, I am your servant. But you can feel the tension within it because in the next verse, David says, do not fear. He realizes the situation. He realizes that Mephibosheth is probably fearing for his life, thinking that he's dead. But David shows him kindness. He says, do not fear. Instead of dying... I'm going to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. For someone that comes in and thinks they are as good as a dead dog, not deserving of any type of kindness whatsoever, here is the king showing this crippled person kindness. What kind of emotions would be going through his mind, do you think? 
You know, you think back to your own time of salvation where you hear the gospel message, where you understand that you are a sinner and you understand what Christ has done for you. You feel unworthy. You feel like this isn't deserved in terms of the grace that has been given to me. And it stands out. Who am I that you would show regard for me? Verse 9, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to all to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that the Lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a, a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table always. Now he was lame in both his feet. So it's not so much that he's going to be showing him kindness, but also that he is going to eat at the king's table. Now again, if you recall the context, Saul kept David in Jerusalem as well. For Saul's heart, that was more so to keep an eye on David because he knew that David was going to be replacing him. There was jealousy, there was enviness, there was hatred in terms of that move of keeping David in Jerusalem. But here the context is to show Jonathan's son kindness. So it's not so much to keep an eye on Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was not a threat. He wasn't loving him as for doing something to get something back, to manipulate the relationship. Instead, he was just genuinely showing kindness. And he gets to eat at the table of the king with the king's sons. You think about our own standing before God. That after we come to Christ uh, and understand him as our savior, that we are called sons and daughters of God. You think about the table that we will eat at. You know, as you read these stories, you can observe the parallels between Mephibosheth and yourself, between David and God. You think about how he was fallen, how he was deformed. You think about your own fallen state and the sin that is in our lives. You think about how he was hiding for preservation. You think about our own lives, how we hide in so many different ways from the eyes of God. He was fearful of the king, so is the sinner. David takes the initiative to seek out Mephibosheth. The Lord takes the initiative to seek out the lost sheep. He leaves the 99 and goes finds that one. He goes and finds you. In spite of his unloveliness, he is brought into the house. He sits at the table. He is in the presence of the king. In spite of our unworthiness, we are brought into the family of God, brought into his presence, given his presence in the form of the Spirit, adopted as his own son and daughter.
when David looked upon this boy, he didn't see a cripple. He saw Jonathan. When God looks upon you, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees the blood of Christ covering you. He sees his son. When we think about the kindness of God, it's again something that we cannot always fathom. We cannot always put to words or understand, just like we talked about last week with his love, understanding fully what all of that means. A few verses in the New Testament to draw some light into this. In John chapter 1, verse 16, you don't have to turn there, there's just a few verses. But in John chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. You know, so many times we think of our salvation moment as just a one-time event. But God's love doesn't work that way. God's love is lavishing. It is overwhelming. It is constant. It is his essence, a part of his essence. And when we think about the love of God, the kindness of God that comes to us, it knows no bounds. Grace upon grace. In Romans chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches, sorry, I lost my spot there. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know, understanding that God just doesn't give out kindness. You know, there's something that's attached to that in terms of repentance, to where we're repenting from that barrenness, we're repenting from that selfishness, we're repenting from that pride, and we're coming back to God. We're coming back into his will. You know, you look at the life of Jonathan, again, who had everything, and everything was planned out for him in terms of lineage, in terms of the next steps in his life. But he stood by his father, and at the same time, he stood by the will of God. He understood the plan of God, and he, he repented for his father, so to speak, like, hey, I know my dad's not really following the Lord, but hey, why don't you try to do that too? Because that's where we need to be. He had an understanding in terms of that the Lord was in control, that the Lord was sovereign and above all of our earthly thoughts, all of our earthly selfishness. God's kindness is given to us for repentance. Understanding that we need to be repentant in our heart of the evil, of the wickedness, of the sin, the barrenness in our lives. And then finally, I want to read from Revelation 19. In terms of our future, in terms of the kindness of God in all of its glory and what we have to look forward to. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus, who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know, so we see this picture in the future of the marriage supper of the Lamb and the, the herald, the messenger angel coming before John and saying, hey, don't worship me. You know, your worship is dedicated to God alone. I am a servant like you. You think of Mephibosheth, you th- think of Ziba, who's come before the king and says, I am your servant. You know, as, as his servants, as his chosen ones, as his elect, as the church, we are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are invited to the king's table. And that's going to be a glorious day. That's going to be a day where we understand fully the kindness of God. Where we understand fully the understanding of salvation and glorification. It's a day that we look forward to. But in the meantime, while we're here on this earth, we understand the kindness of God. We understand the kindness that was done to us, for us, through the sacrifice of Christ. The kindness of sending Jesus to this earth as a baby. The kindness in terms of the love of God who calls our name. Even if we are in the most remote barren deserts, God calls our name. He desires for us to come to him, to seek him out, to understand more and more of who he is to repent from our selfish ways and instead be a servant as Jesus was a servant with humble hearts, serving others and showing others the kindness of God, to be a blessing to the other nations. God's word does not change. His purposes do not change. He is interested and desires lost people to come to him. And as we have already come to him, as we have already experienced that kindness of God, we have the ability to go spread that joy and that love to others. It's such an awesome responsibility to be able to go show God's love and kindness to those around us. So this season, don't take that for granted. You know, like I said, we we oftentimes will take for granted the little things that we might miss in life in terms of acts of kindness. It's those little things that build up, that can, show, that can show God's love through us, where we get to be his hands and feet. It doesn't have to be a diagnosis for us to do that. It could be a Tuesday. We have those opportunities each day, so let's take advantage of those. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the parallels in this story. To see your kindness on display. To see how David was upholding covenants. How David was sharing your love with those who may have been considered his enemy based on cultural and societal standards. 
But Lord, I just pray that you would soften our hearts and that you would continue to lead us towards repentance of our own selfishness. Help us to see your truth and your wisdom through your word and to live that out daily. Lord, we thank you for the kindness that you have showed us. We are undeserving. But Lord, as you have loved us, we cannot turn back. We cannot look away. We can't, we can't discount it or diminish the love of God. So help us to not hold it to ourselves, but instead let our lights shine brightly before men so that they may see our good deeds and think of you in heaven. Lord, help people to see you through us. Lord, I praise you that you have called my name. And I pray, Lord, that I can spread your name for the rest of my life. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.